author Jeffrey Archer wrote a book that captivated me when I was young. And it's the story of Cain and Abel. William Cain and Abel Rosnowski were born on the same day, early in the turn of the 20th century, one in Poland in poverty, the other in Boston into wealth. And it's the story of these two men and their interactions over a lifetime that were born out of a misunderstanding that seeped into becoming this seed of hostility between them that infected both their families and led ultimately to really a tragic loss of connection. They never did make amends, and it almost cost one of them his relationship with his daughter, and it did cost the other his relationship with his son. There are few guarantees in life, but one of them that you can take to the bank is that you're at some point going to be hurt by someone. You see, in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel perceived a slight. He perceived a moment. He misunderstood what was happening, and he was hurt. And in that hurt, he lashed out, and it created this back and forth over an entirety of two lives where neither one of them could come to the place where they could seek reconciliation. We've been, of course, working on whole life discipleship. And just so you have your first square in your bingo card, we've been looking at incurvatus in se, being curved inwards. There is one of those moments in life that curves us inward almost more than anything else. I know I said that last week, but we keep kind of ratcheting this up. Because if we're going to follow Jesus for our whole life and be whole, we need to press into the darkest and deepest corners of our lives. One of those places that curves us inward is our inability to forgive. All of us, all of us have received hurt. All of us have so many things in our lives that we can hold up as something that was unfair, unjust, unrighteous. All of us have something to forgive. I think that also means all of us have someone we need to receive forgiveness from. Jesus has much to say about forgiveness. And there's a story in Matthew 18 where Peter comes to him and again, I find myself so connected to Peter. Because he comes and he asks Jesus, how many times should we forgive, Lord? Seven? And of course, the rabbis and the teachers and the scholars said three, and that came out of the law. If you go into Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you will see that the law clearly teaches on the third time you're forgiven, on the fourth time you're not. 
So Peter, being Peter, decides he's going to ratchet it at double add one because that's the perfect number. And he's going to stand there with a little bit of pride and hubris. Seven, Lord. And then Jesus just sucks the wind right out of him. Because when Peter came and asked, Jesus replied, but 77 times, not seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. So he doesn't even wait for Peter's air to get back in his lungs. He hits him with a parable. And he describes something unimaginable. A servant who owes millions of dollars in a lifetime couldn't possibly pay it back. We used to have this joke when I was in business. If I, if I owe you a million dollars, I'm in trouble. If I owe you ten million dollars, you're in trouble. So the key in business is to owe enough, you become someone else's problem. This was someone else's problem. A servant who owed all of this money. And he couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Of course he can't. Do you get this? He's just doing whatever he can to keep his family and himself out of slavery. He is desperate. He'll say whatever he needs to say in order to get this debt postponed, pushed down the line. Somehow, in some way, I can probably be good enough. I can probably pay you back. He's desperate for a change. But then his master is filled with pity and he released him and then shockingly forgave his debt. So he walks away from the king. He's had this incredible debt, millions of dollars. He no longer has this crushing weight of worry upon him. Have you ever been in a situation where you owed some money and couldn't pay it? Maybe some of you are in that situation now. Everything is bigger at 3 a.m., right? I can imagine this person had a lot of sleepless 3 a.m.s. Suddenly he's free. And what does he do? He leaves the king and runs into his fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Still a significant sum of money. And how does he respond? He grabs him by the throat and demands instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. And then when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset, right? They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And when the king called the man in, then the king called the man in, 
and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Boom. Those are the words of Jesus. If you're reading those in your Bible, they're in a red letter. That is hard stuff to hear. You see, we often paint this picture of Jesus that he's a really good guy. He loves me. And he he just will forgive me for everything. And while that is true, there's some edge here to his words. He's saying, pay attention. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. So what is he talking about? Jesus, of course, doesn't mean that we forgive through clenched teeth, waiting for the eighth time or 88th time or 491st time, and then finally we can give them what they deserve. That is not what he's talking about. If you yourself have been forgiven, that gratitude should infuse you. It should shape you. And it should bring you to a place where you become ready to forgive others. That's what Jesus is saying. Have you really embraced the forgiveness that you've received? Because I think actually most of this is we haven't actually stopped to think through what it is I've actually been forgiven from. Now, maybe it's harder for you than me. I have lived a terrible life. It's really simple for me to take a quick accounting of all the stuff I've been forgiven of. But I think of my mother, who came to Christ at a very young age and has lived, arguably, a very good life. For her, it's a lot harder. And then I say, you raised me, so there's your blame right there, Mom. And then she gives me a scowl and we move on. (laughs) But when you've received that forgiveness, if you really truly embrace what it is you've been saved from, it begins to change the way you see other people. Because underneath, there's this other level that Jesus is referring us to. There's this deep connection he doesn't want us to miss. Forgiveness and love are a two-way street. And the same part of you, spiritually and physically, that gives and receives love and forgiveness, they're all in the same spot. They're connected. If you shut down the part of forgiveness you are inadvertently shutting down the part where you receive forgiveness. It's the way God made us. Our ability to truly receive the grace of Jesus Christ is connected to our ability to forgive others. And I've seen this again and again and again. People who just cannot accept this free gift of grace, they simply cannot believe that Jesus actually paid the price. They cannot 
move into this acceptance and freely give their life to Jesus because they're so shut down to forgiving others, they can't even imagine the possibility of being forgiven. Or worse, they're so bent on what others have done, they can't even see that they need forgiveness. When we close ourselves off to receiving forgiveness, our rage and grief can blind us to our own failures and the need of grace from other people. What Jesus is not offering is a tranquilizing agent. He's not suppressing legitimate expressions of anger and disorientation. Forgiveness is both a spiritual act and it is both holding on to the freedom of forgiveness as well as the bodily feelings of rage and grief. You see, what I'm not telling you is that you ought not to feel the pain, that you ought not to be angry, that you ought not to feel the grief God made you with all of the emotions and all the colors. If you are angry, if you are grieving, you just are. That's okay. In fact, it's healthy. If you've been hurt, you ought to feel it because it matters. And so we're not talking about some way of suppressing these deep feelings of hurt and pain. We see this in the Psalms, this wide range of emotional processing of our fear, our anger, our disorientation, our puzzlement, and the psalmists again and again and again offer up petitions for God's grace and God's forgiveness, while at the same time pouring out these deep and painful emotions for us to read. There's the entire book of Lamentations. It is really a rant before God which shows this deep, utter trust in a creator who loves you enough to hold on to you while you're in the midst of that pain. So forgiveness is not about forgetting. God forgets. We can't. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf notes in our society that we're marked by buying and selling, not giving and receiving. And in a society shaped by violence, retribution, and exclusion, we can easily get caught up in the marketplace idea of forgiveness and grace. You have to ask for it, and then maybe I will give it to you. In such a way, our culture resembles a warehouse where a person can take whatever they want and religion becomes itself a commodity, a social possibility one can use or not use. So we can go through life and we can just decide, I I don't, that's not for me, I'm not going to do that. Yes, it's good for others to forgive, but you don't understand my pain. And because we're buying into that, where you need to repent and grovel before me before I will offer you forgiveness, we get stuck in our bitterness. 
and it hurts us. Forgiveness counters these forces. See, by extending the gift of unmerited grace, we are itself opening ourselves up to receive the gift of unmerited grace. To the extent that faith is able to shape the broader society at all, it will be largely to the degree that it is able to shape the life of a Christian community. You see, what Wolf is saying is that we as a community of faith, if we're really going to shape the culture around us, it's going to start right here with forgiveness. If we can't find forgiveness here, we're simply not going to find it anywhere. And forgiveness flounders because we exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. Do you see this pattern? I don't love my enemy. I hate them. I exclude them. I cancel them. And then in doing so, I actually exclude myself as someone who's actually in need of grace. You see that repeated again and again and again. Jesus presses his followers to see grace in a new light. In Christ, we have received this extravagant grace, and as his followers, we're called to extend that grace to others. See, mercy is not giving to a person what he deserves, while grace is giving to a person what he does not deserve. That's what Jesus has done for us. And this is real-life stuff. I, want, I just want to be honest with you. This is really hard. It's physical. It's emotional. It's mental. It's lived out where we eat, where we sleep, where we sweat. It's the very act of living in what I call last week town number two. If we're actually going to live a whole life discipled, where it's infused through every aspect of our being and our connections, and it changes us in all parts of the way we live, we have to be able to learn how to forgive. See, in Christ we are able to forgive without keeping score. We forgive not because we have to, but because the love of Christ compels us. And he writes, says it this way, every time you accuse someone else, you accuse yourself. Every time you forgive someone else, though, you pass on a drop of water out of the bucket full that God has already given you. So that's what Jesus is doing. So I've given you a bucket full of forgiveness. And out of that, seven times seven 77 times 7, 777 times 7, forgive. This is a hard one to live. And I think we often fail to forgive because we actually don't understand what forgiveness is. So let's start with what it isn't. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. We remember and we have to keep re-forgiving. It doesn't mean there are no consequences. 
Okay? So if, I, if you've done something to me and I forgive you, it doesn't mean there isn't going to be backlash. You could be forgiven for a crime, but you still have to do the time. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you no longer feel the pain of grieving. And most importantly, hear me when I say this, forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. Okay? Because I've forgiven you doesn't necessarily mean it's safe for you to be around me. Especially if you actually haven't repented. Sometimes forgiveness can't be connected to reconciliation because you're forgiving someone who has already passed on. There are lots of reasons why you would not put someone back into your life. But just because a person's not safe doesn't mean they should not be forgiven. Because it's all about your journey. The road to forgiveness is a rugged one. It's hard. And it's unique for everyone. And it isn't a formula. It's an act and an ongoing process where a person moves into forgiveness in such a way that their own heart begins to heal. And when your heart heals you will increasingly have more love to give. And as we said before, it is only love that will curve us outward. The more we can forgive, the more open we become to the love of Christ, the more outwardly curved we become, and the more love we can share with others, and the more love they received, the more outwardly curved they become. And we become disciples, discipling disciples. And the whole community is transformed. But we live in a culture that keeps pushing us back inwards. Renowned pollster George Gallup has studied for decades and one of his studies concluded that we're amongst the loneliest people on earth. And he cites a a number of contributing factors, including individualism, isolationism, urbanization, technology, and consumerism. And it shapes us into maintaining a stubborn independence. And it's become increasingly hard to admit that we need each other. Karen and I were listening to a podcast yesterday and they were talking about how church attendance post-COVID has moved to maybe one in three. And so churches will say we have 300 people, but really only 75 attend on any given Sunday. Now don't get me wrong, I am not against online services. I'm a big proponent of online services. But what that's telling me is that we need to find ways to connect ourselves. We're increasingly, as a society, pulling ourselves apart. Interestingly, Gallup's suggestion for combating this pattern is humility, accountability, and forgiveness. Isn't that fascinating? They point right to Scripture without pointing to Scripture. Humility, accountability, and forgiveness. We find that most in community. Humility reverses competition. Accountability overcomes independence. And forgiveness annuls alienation. 
Humility, accountability, and forgiveness create community and advance community. If we have any hope of being faithful to the call of Jesus Christ on this church, it's going to be rooted in humility, accountability, and forgiveness. For those of you who missed last week, you can hear all about humility by going to either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're there too as well. It's a little plug for our podcast. You know, I've seen this repeated in my own work. Forgiveness always leads to a benefit for the forgiver with an increase in mental health, spiritual health, and a feeling of connectedness to the community. And it's I think I can say this without fail. When I've worked with someone who's struggled with forgiveness, when they've arrived at that place where they can actually begin the process of healing, not necessarily reconciliation, but when they can actually embrace and they keep telling themselves, no, I've forgiven you, no, I've forgiven you, no, I've forgiven you. And sometimes you've got to keep telling yourself that and you have to redo it and redo it and redo it because we really want to pick that up again. But we keep saying, no, 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 I forgive. And we keep telling ourselves that. And all of a sudden, they're a little, little brighter. And their smile's a little bigger. Their step's a little lighter. And I see them coming on Sunday mornings again and again and again. There's something incredibly healthy about forgiveness. And so Jesus' double-edged, toothy call for us is not that God doesn't want to forgive you unless you forgive. That would be salvation by works. He's saying if you want to receive that forgiveness, really, truly have it infuse you and change you and make you so much more free, it is connected to your ability to forgive others. So let's get really practical. One of the things that I was taught how to do when I was in the world of community development was cognitive affective behavioral work with communities that were in trauma. And we would catch them saying the I can'ts, we're broken, we don't know, or we can't do this. And we would help them just to change their phrasing. There's something profound about our minds. When we think we can't do something, we're right. And when we think we can do something, we're right. You will talk yourself into believing just about anything. And so part of this process is really recognizing that if I don't feel like forgiving someone, just pray. Keep saying, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. And one day, you'll realize you actually do. You see, forgiveness is tied directly to grief. And you've all heard the seven stages of grief. I actually think it's eight stages, and it's actually connected to hurt and hope. The back, I've got sheets of paper, PDF I've done, that shows all the verses connected to what I'm about to talk about. Grab one. If there aren't enough there, go see the tech team. They'll print more for you, because I'll be out of here. But everything I'm talking about is connected directly to Scripture. It starts with candor, and this is the stages of hurt, where we become honest with ourselves. 
There's something profound going to God and saying, Lord, I don't want to forgive this person. That is such a profound place to start. You see, Jesus wants to take that honesty because if you've been really hurt, I mean, there's one thing for someone to say something to you that's a bit of a slight, but there are things that people have done to us that is really, really hard to get over. And sometimes we don't want to. We start with candor. We move to anger and resentment. Again, this complaint before God, this honesty with God, this hurts. I want retribution. I want justice. And the fact that they are free and I am not, I hate that. That's the Psalms. That's the, lamb, the lament of pouring out before God. This is how I feel. We move to bargaining, asking God for help. I just, how many times I've been in situations where I've actually talked myself through what I'm going to say to the other person? Because if they just understood my perspective, they would immediately see what they've done is wrong. They would change their mind, and this would all be okay because I know this is wrong. Have you had those conversations with yourself? And then they don't hear you, or they don't even take the time to listen. Or shockingly, they actually have something against me. How is that possible? Me. You know me. I'm awesome. Don't ask Karen. And then we move into depression and alienation. We push everyone away. And we, we just we feel it deeply. And it's in that moment where we cry deeply. We pour that out before God. And we just, with an honest, open-handed approach, Lord, I'm on my face here. I can't even possibly imagine what freedom might feel like. That's what God wants from us. Grab the sheets, it's all there. Then we move into stages of hope. We begin to regroup. The seed of faith starts to grow. And we start to say, maybe, maybe this is true. Maybe I can forgive. And if I don't have to reconcile, then maybe there's a possibility here. And then we begin to feel a deadening where it doesn't quite hurt so much. We're still wailing, but we're groaning with a sense of hope. And we remember that when I can't pray, the Holy Spirit's praying for me. When I'm groaning, the Spirit is groaning in ways that God can comprehend. So that suddenly I wake up to this fact, I'm not even praying for me. God is praying for me. Think about that for a moment. Whatever pain you've experienced, whatever's happened to you that has left you weaker or broken, the Spirit is praying for you. Then we begin 
the doubting process, we begin to perceive this idea of grace. Is this possible? Is grace possible? I've been forgiven. Can I forgive? And then the wonderful renewing. And we engage with love in worship before the God that forgave us, that made it possible for us to forgive others. And our hearts begin to heal. And we begin to walk upright. The journey to forgiveness, and it is a journey, is one that is filled with pain. And it's filled with surprise. And it's in this surprise where we find the hope. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son so that we could find life. We see this in Jesus. Not in words and in actions. I love the story in Matthew and I'll finish with this. The story of the four friends who gathered up their buddy who was broken, couldn't walk. He had been paralyzed for life. And they heard that Jesus was in town. So they haul him on his bed. And they get there and of course the crowds have surrounded him. No one can get even close to him. He's inside this tiny home. So they climb up on the roof and they do whatever it takes. They're tearing the roof apart in order to get their friend to Jesus. They're looking for physical healing. And what does Jesus do? The first thing he does when he sees them, he sees their faith. And he says, take heart, son. Your sins are are forgiven. See, Jesus sees the real need. He sees that inside this person is a whole lot of bondage. I cannot even imagine what a lifetime of being crippled in first century Palestine must have felt like. The amount of times that that person had been slighted, mistreated, broken. How many things did that person have to forgive? And in that moment, Jesus sees the real need. You're forgiven. Before he even uttered it. He never asked for it. That abundance of forgiveness in the life of Christ was poured out for this human being who was broken. Of course, he doesn't leave him there. He heals him and he walks away. He dances away. This is my hope for all of us, that we too can be so immersed, so shaped, so outwardly curved by this love of Christ, that forgiveness will take root and that we will all arrive at that place where we too can offer forgiveness even to those who don't seek it from us. Especially to those who may not even deserve it. This is the freedom that I want for you. Better yet, this is the freedom that Jesus offers you. May it be so 
for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, you know each of our stories. You know the myriad ways that we have been hurt by others. The terrible things, the ghastly things, the horrific things that happen to human beings. Lord, in the brokenness of our world, we treat one another so often in terrible ways. Lord, you know right now the hurt that exists in every heart in this room and listening to us online. First and foremost, Lord, I pray that we would all be able to lift that hurt up to you. To feel a deep sense of your presence in the midst of pain. Lord, I ask that that love would woo us. Woo us into that place where we can receive healing as your love begins to curve us outward. And Lord, in those stages of, of pain and despair, may they lead to an honest connection to you so that we can begin stages of hope. May we, may we all receive renewing, Lord. Lord, please bring to our minds right now a person or people that you are giving us the power to forgive. Lord, if possible, we would ask for reconciliation. But we understand, Lord, that that takes a repentant heart on the part of the other person. But Lord, help us to forgive even when the other person doesn't want it. So that we can be healed ourselves, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally. And Lord, in that, for the ways that we have hurt others, may we be so curved outwards that we can see that. that we would seek reconciliation. But to offer up our repentance to you and to them so that community can be enhanced and restored transformed. Thank you, Lord, that you first forgave us. And while we were broken and lying on a bed, thinking what we needed was the ability to walk, you knew first we needed the ability to feel. So, Lord, thank you for giving to us the gift of feeling in our pain and in our sorrow, lead us into transformation and grace so that we too 
can love others and forgive others freely. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.